Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to deliver a full barrage the podcast where our historians gear themselves up for one glorious big push against myth. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as always, with my very own regretful conscript, Kyle Glover. Hello. Really feeling the pain of Tommy Atkins there, aren't you? We're, we're back from the Christmas break this time, so it's like, mm. But hello, everyone. Welcome yeah. back to History Rage. <laughs> Do try and enjoy yourself, Kyle. <laughs> Well, this week, dear Ragers, we are flying back to the dark, dank and lice-infected realm of the First World War and getting down and dirty in the mud of the trenches. And to take us on this journey to undermine the trenches, we are joined by military historian and battlefield guide Dan Hill. Dan, welcome to History Rage. Uh, Thanks very much, gents. Really looking forward to it. Excellent. Feeling angry? Uh, Yeah, generally angry, an angry state in general. But yeah, (laughs) no more than (laughs) usual, but we'll get stuck in. Yeah, absolutely. So you came to us during our somewhat surprising Hall of Rages when we just put out a request for asking for anybody who supported the French. And Christ, did I get a response on that one. But our paths until now haven't actually crossed as yet. So could you tell us and our listeners about you, your background and the sort of work that you're doing within the history community? Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose I, I came to history, I suppose, like a lot of people, just because I just love the thing. You know, it's such a diverse subject, loads of different areas to cover, lots of interest. And military history has always kind of held a, a special place in my heart, really. You know, growing up watching war films like everybody else mm-hmm. and, and having my own personal history as well with my relatives serving in the Great War and in the Second World War and having relatives killed in those wars as well. You know, it kind of brings it to life uh, to a certain extent and brings it home very much as well so you know over the years I've, I've kind of always had that interest and that passion develops and I was very lucky to get a job over at the Imperial War Museum about Christ must be about 15 years ago now yeah. and that really kind of set me on the path to what I do today which is working uh, day-to-day as a military historian um, a lot of battlefield tours as well taking people out to battlefields and trying to shape the narrative and knock down some of those myths I'm sure we'll touch on today in the yeah. process mm-hmm. 
Uh, so we've had a few people on that kind of like got their initial break, as it were, via Imperial War Museum. So we've got sort of um, Sam Jolly, who'd been on, who went down the museum curator route. Uh, we've had Chris Samson, who's gone very much down the writer uh, route. And now yourself, that's gone down the battlefield guide route, um, as well as uh, other branches as well. So what, what pushed you down that route rather than anywhere else? Do you know, I, th- I think there's something about actually being out on the battlefields, and I'm sure this is something that you've heard before now with uh, with Gotta walk the ground. Gotta walk the ground. Gotta walk the ground. 100%. Yeah, you know, to really understand a battle on a battlefield, that there's, some, there's something tangible and intangible at the same time about visiting battlefields you know you you know that you're stepping on the same places where that history took place but sometimes you know you could you can be walking across a field and there's no visible sign that it was there yet the research and and all of those things that you can do can really bring it to life Mm -hmm. and so for me you know being out on battlefields is uh has always been a pleasure and and you know it just doesn't get old some things you can do and you know after a little while you get tired of it and think oh you know it's it's a bit bleak it's a bit cold it's a bit wet None of that really matters when I'm on a battlefield. I just just love the experience and I love to share it with other people as well. Yeah, I know from my own experience, I started out as a bit of a medievalist at heart before I Mm. went down the route of Georgian and crime. And living up in Yorkshire, I live about 10 miles away from Towton Battlefield, uh, the Wars of the Roses. And I have to say, you can read a lot on Battle of Towton and you can read a lot on the route and the slaughter and everything. But until you actually go and see the cock back and what they had to route through that really that that game changes your entire view of, of that battle that really brings it home to you and i think i think yeah going going to what you were saying you know be, walking the ground you can't really understand it until you're there can you yeah that's it and you know the uh you know Towton being obviously I, I if i remember rightly the bloodiest battle ever fought on english soil you know it's a perfect example got some some incredible history in places like that but you know to actually understand the decisions that were made how they were made how people operated in, in terms of the first world war how people lived in those environments you know it, it really kind of brings it to life and and gives you that different perspective you know the, the truth is if you go out to a first world war battlefield you know, we're standing up on the surface. We've got a much better view than any any First World War soldier ever got. If you really mm-hmm. want to know what it was like, you've got to lie on the ground because that's about the kind of eye level that these guys had. So it, it changes everything. And to be able to be in these places um, and, and at the same time, you know, do the right thing in terms of remembrance as well, which is very important for me and I'm sure a lot of your guests, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's just a, such a special experience and something that you really can't replicate anywhere else. So, so you quite clearly love what you do so let's get in to confronting that that you hate okay so you've come on because you're pissed off about well i wouldn't say that a historian is never pissed off about just one thing uh but we're going to narrow you down to broadly one thing regarding this episode so would you please tell our baying mob of history rages out there what you wish people would just stop believing do you know, for me, it's got to be this idea that trench warfare is just a one-dimensional, static position with people sitting in trenches for four years, going nowhere, making mindless over-the-top attacks. For me, it's the idea that the First World War is just one-dimensional. It absolutely isn't. It, there's so much more to it. 
And, you know, th there are many, many things that we could bring up. You know, it, it's going to be difficult to narrow it down to just one. But the idea yeah. that trench warfare is just a static, simple, straightforward, albeit incredibly bloody experience. It's way more complex and diverse than that. And that's the message that I'd love to get across to people. You know, it, just look at this subject in detail. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I suppose you can't have four years of war that just worked. Well, we had this a little bit when Alex and Andy came on. So like the, just the idea that you spend four years just chucking regiments over the top in the hope that you've got more regiments than they have is just insane, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you said it, you know, and uh, and that's one of the things that when we when we look about things like the Great War, you know, we look at it and say, well, why did they do these uh, these crazy things? You know, why did generals make these decisions, send these guys over the top day in and day out? And you look at it today and think, well, that's not a very good idea. Well, the truth is, 100 years ago wasn't a very good idea either, and that's why they didn't do it. it's as simple as that you know <laughs> yeah. so um so there we are i wonder if we hit the point a little bit too early there but but the the truth is you know it's it's much more complex than that there are obviously occasions where guys have got to go over the top they've got to get stuck yeah. into the fight things have to be done progress has to be made but the idea that the same thing is done every time is is totally erroneous. And, it, it you know, it's come into our psyche and, and into the public domain through things which ironically get us interested in the subject in the first place. You know, mm. Blackout Goes Forth is a hilarious and incredibly moving series as well when you get to the end. But, you know, battlefields like battlefield guides like myself and historians, we also spend a lot of our time trying to debunk those myths that have kind of been dragged into the the, the public sphere. You know, it, it's a fascinating subject and there's just so much more to it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, one of the things that sticks in my mind when I when I talk about the Great War, that, that perhaps it's not something that's really, um, really commented on so much. But there is a divide between people who study the First World War, people who study the Second World War and the historians of those wars as well. They really shouldn't be because the guys who are prominent in the Second World War are there because they were very impressive in the First World War. Yeah. You know, the, the generals of the Second World War cut their teeth at Passchendaele and on the Somme. Yeah. You know, there's a very direct lineage to all of this stuff. And, you know, when it, when it comes to making bad decisions, yeah, some are made in the Great War. Far too many are made in the Great War. But people learn. There's a hell of a lot of learning that goes on on the battlefields. And there's a there's a huge amount more to it than we sometimes give credit for. So, as I understand it from previous episodes, the Great War actually starts off quite mobile. It's before we get into before we get into trenches and so forth. It starts off quite mobile. So, from kind of a strategic pers perspective, uh, and just to give us kind of like a potted history of of how do we end up going from this mobile conflict of cavalry and artillery and cuts and thrusts and raids and so forth to ending up facing off across, across no man's land in this static warfare, which I appreciate it doesn't last for the whole war, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. So how do we get there? Yeah, it's a fair point. Yeah, a bit, obviously a big bulk. The, the central core, if you like, of the Great War is, of course, fairly static um but yeah as you, as you rightly say you know at the start of the great war it's anything but that you know there's a there's a lot of movement the uh, initial move up of the british expeditionary force up to mons subsequent retreat back through lakato and way down to the uh, to the ain and the Marne is very you know it's very open warfare uh, the, the truth of the matter is it's also a, a new style of warfare the mm -hmm. great war is a gunner's war it's an artilleryman's war 
There's heavy machine guns deployed on the battlefield in numbers like they've never been before. There's artillery that can fire 7, 10, 12 miles. If you quite simply have a standing field army actually out in a field, it's not going to be a standing field army for very long. And so, you know, the simple thing is they need to get people out of the out of the rate of fire out of the the line of fire and try and preserve lives it's it's ironic when we talk about the great war and uh, attrition and trying to take enemy lives a big part of that in fact perhaps the bigger part of that is saving the lives of your own guys or preserving them and so trench warfare comes about fairly quickly really by the end of october 1914 we've got trench warfare starting to develop in in a serious way in the salient and of course spread some 400 odd miles right down to the swiss border but the idea is get your guys in cover, give them some protection, but still be within range to react to the enemy and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It, it also raises a bigger point, though, as well, in that it, you know it's worth setting out when you talk about the Great War that it's the Germans that are the aggressors in 1914. Their famous Schlieffen plan to try and destroy the French and Belgian and British armies before turning east it is an aggressive move. And in fact, the Germans come in and they capture 90% of Belgium and a big old chunk of northern France as well. They've set their stall out as early as 1914 as being the aggressors. That kind of changes really when trench warfare comes along. The yeah. Germans are, are really saying by that point, okay, we've kind of got as much ground as we, we need at the moment. We're going to now sit back in a defensive posture. And quite simply, you can boil the Great War down to the Germans saying, we're staying here. The Allies saying, we want you to leave. The Germans say, if you want us to, you've got to make us. And so you, in effect, get this switch where the Allies all of a sudden become the aggressors. and They're the ones trying to push the Germans back. And the Germans, as a result, dig deep, dig well-revetted trenches, and they cite their defences to last. It's, it's a difference in mindset, but actually it, it underpins a lot of we understand about the Great War. So, so the Germans at that point then are not doing the sort of they're not doing the sort of charge that we would think of when we think of the Great War. They're they're just sitting there. We've got to attack them, and of course, that's going to make it even more difficult for us then, because you know if you if you're attacking a defensive position, any military historian will tell you what you need you need three four to one advantage to to win that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the famous three to one. Um, you, you could argue it needs to be more than that in the Great War. And there are a lot of, lot of nuances involved in it as well. But, you know, as, as far as the, uh, the, the kind of German mentality being a defensive one is, you know, those guys are planning to, to stay there until they're forced out of those positions. It's not all one way traffic. There are a couple of, uh, you know, famous incidences where you do have the Germans still going over the top and trying to make meaningful advances. The use of gas at the Second Battle of Ypres, for example. And then famously the spring offensive, which does break trench warfare in march 1918 you know they're, they're anomalies as is the uh, as is the german offensive down against the french at verdun all of which deserve their own place in history mm. but you know as far as the, the the british mentality goes and and it's worth saying that the brits on the whole are the aggressors in the great war they work on this mentality that the area that they control goes up to the enemy parapet so it includes no man's land yeah. whereas from a German perspective, it really ends on the front of their own trench. So there is this kind of aggressive posture that comes out, and it's a costly one. 1915 is not a good year for the BEF. They make some bad mistakes, and you know we're, we're talking about things that make people angry today. The Battle of Loos in 1915, there are some real clangers dropped there. There's some really poor decisions made. But those decisions basically inform what happens later on so on the Somme again and not another good not another no. particularly a good experience especially on the opening day but it progresses from that point 
you know when these guys make changes they make them well and they implement them and and the result the the victory in 1918 is a direct result of those lessons learned earlier in the war okay yeah, we've, we've been sort of already discussed that the idea of the First World War is, is the trenches, the mud, the lice, the misery, the cold, the wet. The bloody uh, poetry. The, poetry. <laughs> the endless poetry. But this time, this is sort of what we think of when Blackadder comes up. Uh, Baldrick wants to marry General Malchett so he doesn't have to sleep in a puddle. But what were the trenches actually like? What was the conditions for the average British soldier like what was their accommodation like did they have to sleep in a puddle yeah unless they particularly like sleeping in puddles i, I would generally mm-hmm. go for one of the drier duck boards but yeah absolutely it depends on the part the, the part of the war that you you happen yes. to turn up mm-hmm. in and in fact the area that you turn up in from a geographical perspective as well but you know if you are you know early doors 1914 if you're uh, one of the early uh bf perhaps one of the earlier territorial units that make their way out to the Western Front, you know, you might find yourself in Christmas 1914, as a number of regiments do, waist deep in water, freezing cold, you know, in a really awkward situation. There's, there's a couple of practical reasons for that. One is you don't turn up to France and Belgium and find somebody's conveniently dug a load of trenches for you in 1914, and it's a lot of work to dig those trenches. Yeah. What troops do find, though, is quite a lot of drainage ditches. And uh, you know, if you're given the option, do I dig a trench here or do I use that existing drainage ditch? They try and save themselves a bit of effort and use a drainage mm. ditch. Problem with drainage ditches is they're designed to channel water, and so you get some pretty, some pretty bad experiences. Yeah, but by 1915, it doesn't. It's not going to take long of standing waist deep in freezing cold water to think something's got to change. And that's a big point about the Great War: things change quick. You know, if you asked, if I asked you guys to go and stand in a drainage ditch at one or two degrees, cent, you know, one or two degrees centigrade for a couple of uh, for a couple of hours, or perhaps overnight, how many nights are you going to do that before you realise, yeah, don't fancy that anymore? We're going to need to make some changes. And to be fair, and with you know, my, my work ethic, you're not really getting me to go there <laughs> yeah. in the first place. Well, fair point. Fair yeah, point. Half, of, um, half of one for me. Yeah, it, indeed. You, it, well. You know, I think for most of us, it's going to change pretty quick. And, and uh, you know, and that's exactly what happens, to be fair. So, you know, these guys who in 1914 are in these really bad environments, by the time we get to the middle of 1915, you've got engineers coming in. You've got millions of guys out on the Western Front faced with this same dilemma. How do we make this a bearable experience to be? And we're just talking front lines here, of course. Mm. It's much more, much more complex than that. And, you know, people come up with quite clever ideas. OK, well, let's uh, let's keep a drainage channel but let's keep it under our feet let's duck board and revet our trenches let's install pumps and we're going to pump our water out and make sure that we've got it going away from the trenches we need to in some cases dig trenches above ground you know a big part of the 1915 battlefields around new chapelle and loose and orbers ridge they're, they're butts they're not trenches they're actually dug above ground so you know all of these things are done for practical reasons try and keep the guys comfortable keep them as comfortable as possible and keep them active in the field. You know, you don't necessarily have to shoot a guy for them to be ineffective as a soldier. What you could do is get them to submerge their feet in water for three days and, yeah. uh, and see if they're willing to march a couple of miles because they're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. I suppose if your guys have got like, frostbite, hypothermia and trench foot, then yeah. you may as well have shot them. You know, and you don't want to, no officer no officer worth his salt is going to look at a battalion of guys that are all shivering themselves half to death and just go, oh, pull yourself together. 
Yeah. You know, yeah, there's they, some hardship there's in a, the army, we know that, but they, they, the officers, as a rule, should really have the best interests of their guys at heart. 100%. And, and not even as a rule, across the board, that's the case. You know, these are the guys that they're going to fight with. These are the guys mm. they're going to lead, uh, in many cases, die leading. You know, it's, uh, it's to have the welfare of your men at heart is absolutely ingrained in the British military in the First World War. It's, it's an officer's job, you know. You, the front lines are, are not staffed exclusively by officers and men from the aristocratic ranks. And those guys, you know, they've got a responsibility to the men under their command as well. And so we see this all the time in the Great War. It's people really, really working hard to keep those lads comfortable and keep them as effective fighting soldiers. The bottom line is that they're there for a job. Yeah. If they're in good condition, they're going to get the job done better, going to get the job done quicker, and people get to go home sooner. So. Kind of ask, sort of, in terms of the accommodation. Uh, so first of all, are these guys sleeping on top of duckboards actually out in the trenches, or are those just the guys that are on watch that are casting a bit of rest? You know, how do you go about in that system housing the millions of guys that you've got out on the Western Front? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you know, if you take the the entire BEF, um, total numbers of the BEF that spend uh, some time on the Western Front in the Great War, it's five point four million guys. That's a hell of a lot of people. In fact, if you translate that to a city in the UK, it's second only to London. And these guys have got to get sustained in an army in the field in northern France and Belgium, which means there's a lot of infrastructure required. Mm -hmm. As far as the front line goes, the accommodation is is pretty much non-existent. It's finding a space, a little a little cut into the side of a trench. If you're an officer, you may have you may have a, an officer's dugout, a company dugout, which would be kind of hotbed really between yourself and the other company officers but it's getting by for those guys the majority of those guys are just trying to get by they might have a shelter they might have something a little bit ad hoc but the main thing is these guys are not in the front lines for a long period of time and this is one of the i suppose the big misunderstandings of the great war it's not four years in the front line most people get most of their rest way behind the lines Trench rotation is the order of the day, really from the start of 1915 onwards. It's tough being in a frontline trench. In fact, it's so tough, it's not really sustainable for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So what we tend to find is that troops go into the front line, they'll spend a, an uncomfortable, depending on the weather and the conditions, uh, and the, of course the battlefield conditions, period of maybe three or four days in the front line before being rotated back into a support line where you've got much more sturdy positions. You may have a, a ruined house that you can get your head down in. You may have a couple of barns, these kind of things behind the lines. And then you're going to go and spend about eight days in the reserve where you're way back in a local town, five, six, seven, eight miles behind the lines within range of heavy artillery but generally speaking you know these guys are going to be billeted in farmyards and schools and factories where they've got a dry roof over their heads they've got some kind of creature comforts and it's a mm. chance to recharge the batteries for your next stint up the front line as a whole we're talking a 365 day year for a frontline infantryman you're looking at spending about 65 days a year in the front lines so about 300 of those days are either in support or reserve positions or way back or maybe even on leave. Yeah. So it's, it's different to what we sometimes consider. Yeah, because I read a, uh, I, I read a statistic somewhere. I cannot go, I cannot for the life of me remember where. So, hey, historian who can't cite a source here. <laughs> um, but I read a statistic. There's something like about only one in five, one in six guys that went out to, to the Western Front actually saw anything happen. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, it's it's one of those depends uh, a classic yeah. depends answer that you can put put in anything. You know, it's um one one guy in particular that sticks in my mind is a guy called Clifford Lane. I, I I'm a big fan of the Hertfordshire Regiment, my local county. I like to tell the tell the story of these lads, the territorials. A guy called Clifford Lane in 1916 comes back um, and he sees his uh, his girlfriend's father, and she says uh, he says to him, "Sit down, boy. You must be exhausted from bayoneting those Germans all day." And uh, he just bursts out laughing. He says, "I've been I've been on the front line for two years. I haven't even seen a German yet. You know, it's he's he's been he's been over the top, but he's still not been in contact with with, with German troops. And but he was a front line infantryman that had been in some of the hottest fighting that and the the most intense areas of the entire Western Front. The reality of of these guys going over the top is incredibly rare. Maybe once a year you might do it on average. The reason it's incredibly rare because it's incredibly dangerous at the same time." You can't be going over the top every day, you know. There's there's a there's a reality here. Yeah. And whilst the the, the casualty numbers, um, you know, on those days when it goes badly, you know, are, are horrific. The the majority of the time, these guys are just trying to get by. They're not they're not superheroes. They're they're ordinary people just living in extraordinary times. Yeah, I suppose they they didn't get much choice whether or not. Well, some of them didn't get much choice whether they were there or not. Uh, and yeah, so they're just gonna do it the best they can, make the best of every bit of bad shit, and and yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, there, there, there's that famous phrase, you know, I joined for my country, but I endured for my friends, and uh, I think it rings quite true when you when you look at these kind of things. You know, the the difficulty of of getting out onto the uh, you know of sustaining life on the front lines it is really the kind of uh, the heroic aspect for me. You know, you can talk about people going over the top and, uh, and doing incredible things in battle. The, the thing for me is the fact that these guys are never truly out of danger. You know, even when you are in reserve, it is still a dangerous environment to be in, but it's just the willingness to just sustain those hardships of life that, that it's, you know, incredible to me, you know, yeah. such a powerful thing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. So if you're turning up as your your average your average Tommy Atkins in let's let's pick 1916 let's go some years and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This this network this environment is already well set up. So you you turn up you you volunteered you you hit 18 you volunteered signed up with the regiment and they've got they've been sent over to France. Okay. How does that go? What does that guy go through? before he actually ends up at that trench? 
in terms of um you know what if we pick it up at say the the point of reaching the battlefields in the first place you know getting going through your basic training at home getting kitted out and equipped and, and doing some rudimentary work in terms of trench warfare yeah you know these guys are um you know for one they're they're getting much more physically healthy and stronger um, you know, average soldier in the first war is only five foot five tall. You know, they're they're generally not from a healthy background, particularly those guys from the city. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these guys are getting a much healthier, a much uh, more calorific diet than they've ever had before. So they're building up their physical strength. Finally, they hit the battlefields, and very likely they're going to end up in what we call a nursery trench. So one of those quiet areas that is kind of ad hoc designated by both the Germans and the Brits. Uh, in in the case of the Western Front, you'd be looking somewhere around Armentiers or or Plug Street, as it was known. And you just go out and you learn the basics of trench warfare. It's how to live, how to survive, how to walk in a trench, how to get up the line, how to get back, what to watch out for, what to do and what not to do. Yeah. And they try and do this in a in as safe an environment as possible. Give those guys a bit of experience before then they get moved down to those more dangerous locations. So it's really it's a, it's a cumulative gathering of experience. They're usually put in the line with a unit who has been up there for a period of time. So you know, in 1916, a new pals unit will be put in the line with either a regular or a long-standing territorial unit, and you send half of you guys up on a daily basis. You might send them up for an evening into the front lines. And the job is watch and learn, boys. Yeah. Find out how to how to operate and try and minimize those casualties. It's all about minimization wherever possible. And so by the time these guys actually hit, you know, possibly the Somme, possibly somewhere else, they've at least got an understanding, even if they've not been over the top, of what it's like to operate in that kind of environment. Yeah. So you've got those basic things of like, yeah, keeping the guns clean, keeping everything dust free. Yeah. What to do with artillery, how to respond to a gas drill. You know, you can say as much as they as you like about that in basic training, but until like you say, until you walk the ground, you don't really know uh, you don't really know your ass from your elbow. Uh, and you yeah, don't want to much. be so actually let me rephrase that. So the guys then that we get that are, are going over the top are at the front line. They've actually taken a lot of time to make sure that these guys know what they're doing. Then they're not just throwing over and hoping sheer numbers will just win the day. These people, they're making sure these people have got experiences and skills that they need if they're going to do that. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, uh, take the. I know you guys have covered this before, but it's such an important topic. You know, take the idea of a, a general or a senior officer in the Great War. You know, they they're given a, if you like, a, if we be a little bit flippant with it, a poker hand that they can play. You know, they've got various various hands that they can put down, hoping that they've got a stronger hand to defeat the, the Germans on the other side of the wire. You know, they're going to try and play as smart with that hand as they possibly can. And one of those things is sending over guys who've got the right experience, the right mentality, the right morale, know what they've got to do. All of these kind of elements play into it. The kind of the, the big poker game of the Great War, though, you can, you can boil it down to, to one, I think, quite powerful thing. And that's that the chips that are placed on the table are these same lads' lives. Mm. And... The truth is these guys want to retain those chips. They want to keep hold of the assets that they've got. Sending a battalion over the top, not knowing what they're doing, not knowing where they're going, not knowing how to react, as you say, to artillery, machine gun fire, how to how to change the environment on the battlefield. You're gonna run out of you're gonna run out of assets very, very quick. You're not gonna make any process and you're gonna get a lot of people killed. And so all of these elements kind of play into this uh, this idea when it comes to to for one, formal over the top attacks. You know, we say, oh, well, 
why did these guys send people walking directly into machine guns without any thoughts and do the same thing the very next day? Sounds like a terrible idea. Well, yeah, it is. And so they didn't do it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, so we've covered a little bit about how an attack works. So um, what were they trying to achieve? What sort of things would they factor in, depending on you know, location, uh, how many men they've got, how many men they're facing, and just what other resources they've got? That's a good question, and again, uh, without um, sidestepping too much, it goes to the old. Uh, it goes to the old depends answer again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as early as in 1914 and up to sort of uh, really the early part of 1915, you, you've got this uh, you know pie in the sky idea that the final objective of the British Army is Berlin every day. You know these these. Mm attacks that are meant to break through the enemy positions you know we're going to get through we're going to smash open trench warfare we're going to win the war that's that's one thing that you find early on that changes pretty quick but people realize it's not realistic for a a whole host of different reasons Mm. you know by the time you get to things like loose in 1915 or more specifically the Somme in 1916 you've got much more modest gains that that are planned you want to bite and hold this this famous idea of biting off a chunk of front line, hanging on to it as much as possible, and basically drawing in the enemy so they're going to counterattack you and lose a lot of guys doing it. There's a famous phrase that is used, that there are three things certain in life, and that's death, taxes, and German counterattacks. <laughs> Germans love a counterattack in the Great War, well, for good reason as well, because they want to try and disrupt their enemy whilst they're at the most vulnerable point. And one of those points might be when you've just gone over the top and you've captured an enemy frontline position. Now, most people uh, perhaps don't realize when you think about it, but actually trenches are one-dimensional, one way, in fact. They've got a fire step dug into one side, which allows your guys to get over the top and fire at the enemy. They haven't got a fire step on the back. So if you Mm -hmm. capture the enemy front line, all of a sudden you're occupying a trench that you can't now defend. Along with that, the Germans quite often will pre-register their own position. So if they lose a trench, they can drop a shell pretty much directly into that location. And so as far as attacks go, they're much, much more complex. The Brits learn a lesson fairly quickly and they end up usually now bypassing German trenches and digging a new one. It's not worth the hassle of reversing a trench, as they call it, and turning it around. But the other thing about particularly the Somme, for example, you know, we look at the idea of going over the top and and we think, yes, going to capture the enemy trench. That's not the end of the job. That's the start of it. First of all, you've got to get there which is tricky enough, crossing no man's land. Mm-hmm. We can talk about walking and all these kind of things and, and the, the logic behind it. But once you get there, not only have you got to fight and defeat the enemy in the frontline positions, but you've got to work your way through a much deeper set of trenches. As we said a, a little bit earlier on, you know, the Germans, they're there to stay and they built their defenses in depth. You know, On the Somme, you get up to seven lines of trenches, each of which mutually supporting scientifically sighted machine guns. You've got counter batteries, you've got all kinds of traps and nasty things in the way. And, and so you know, the, the job is not only to capture the front line, but it's to push through and to burst through into the enemy rear positions. So chaos, if you can, maybe capture some distant objective. You know, Passchendaele has got some some strange idea they might try and get through and capture the uh, you know the German sub pens on the ports and these kind of things. That's never really going to happen. More modest gains though are achievable, and if you can get through your enemy's main lines and you can start chewing up their vitals and destroying their communication hubs, you know there's going to be real progress made, and we do see that later in the war. Lovely. So again, go back to this idea of walking across no man's land and 
are being mown down by machine guns. The, this eternal myth of uh, of the Great War. How does an attack actually work? You know, is there coordination support from other parts of the army, other regiments, the Flying Corps or the Air Force, depending on where you are uh, and when you are, the Navy, in fact, uh, and things like that. How is the British military working together to make that attack happen? And how is it how is it performed? If it's not just a straight charge across no man's land, what the hell is it? Well, that's a good question. And uh, sounding very broken record, it's going to be the same old depends <laughs> yeah. answer. But, but there is a there is a logic behind it because, of course, it evolves, and you know, it evolves based on what the experiences are before that. You know, so by 19, in 1914, you know, there are some pretty straightforward, pretty one dimensional attacks that go in. Particularly in 1915, there's a few real, real nightmarish, simple, over the top walking attacks which are over very unfavourable ground, famously loose, of course, known as unfavourable ground words of, of Haig himself. But, you know, th- there are still things that are planned to try and tip the odds, change the balance in favour of the attackers, to try different elements. You know, it, it depends in in a big part, actually, on the ability of the troops in the line at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a professional regular soldier is going to have way more chance of being successful in doing something that's a little more technically difficult, you might argue. So, you know, on the 1st of July, 1916, there's a big chunk of pals, uh, you know, new army Kitchener's guys going over the top. They don't have battle experience. And so the idea of launching a, a night attack with a with a left flanking manoeuvre, you know, and to try and escalate some enemy trenches and leapfrog formations, these kind of things, it, it's just too advanced for these guys. It's going to descend into chaos in no time. If you've got regular army units, yeah, you can try stuff like that. You're still coming up against the same old triumvirate of problems, and it, it's the, the age-old problems of the, of the Great War. It's machine guns, it's barbed wire, and it's artillery. And, and it's some guys with some guts defending them. Yeah. In terms of the physical attack, things develop, you know, pretty significantly. I'm sure. I know you had Andy and those guys. I'm sure the word SS135 came up at some point. It's a training manual that's brought out in 1917, talking about how you can uh, advance as platoons and how you can really devolve and, and and operate on the battlefield at a much lower level. In 1915 and 1914, really, you've got your senior officers commanding. They know where they're going. They know what the job to be done is. But if you lose those commanding officers, there's much less autonomy on the battlefield. By 1917, and particularly by 1918, when you start getting this all-arms warfare, of course, the, the precursor to the famous Blitzkrieg that we forget in between the wars is another story for another day. The the idea when you start getting these guys working together, you get tanks operating directly in close contact with infantry. You get aircraft spotting for artillery on the ground. You get rolling barrages. You get gas and smoke being used. You get all of these kind of collaborative factors working to the, together. That's when we start to see real progress. The, the, the most impressive day of the Great War, as far as the British Army is concerned, in my opinion, is the 8th of August 1918. It's the opening day of the Battle of Amiens. It's where all of those lessons that we've learned at such high costs in the Great War are all put into practice at the same time. And the guys are trusted on the ground to do their jobs and they trust each other. And that's when we see real success. If we go back to the start of the Great War, you mentioned there that like 1914, 1915, they, they are just go over the top, charge at it, see what mm. happens. Now I was thinking, kind of back then, Royal Flying Corps is not in huge amounts of numbers. 
mm-hmm. uh, of 1914, and possibly even fewer in terms of aircraft. Um, the tank isn't a thing. For the most part, the Navy are not going to really help. What do you actually, short of actually sending a big bunch of you guys just over to try and kick the Germans out of that trench, what the hell are you going to attack with? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So there, there are limited options in 1915. It's worth mentioning, though, things like armoured cars are used, um, you know, uh, famously at the uh, Battle of Albers Ridge. You've got armoured car, Royal Naval armoured cars sections brought into the battlefield to provide a little bit of uh, local really? organic fire support. Yeah, uh, a guy who wins uh, Wimbledon seven times, seven-time Wimbledon champion, is uh, killed with an armoured uh, armor car detachment at the Battle of Albers Ridge. So, you know, these kind of things are, are brought in. Uh, night attacks are brought in, you know, uh, night attacks being particularly useful. You know, you can really, uh, really shut down your enemy's uh, ability to, to, to react, particularly over long distances. Um, flank attacks, faint attacks are used. None of this really particularly well. Um, close quarter combat does improve quite significantly, as does the use of things like mortars. You know, mortars are a great example in terms of kind of evolution on the battlefield, actually. You know, in, 19, in 1914, we're using jam tin bombs. We're, we're literally packing uh, literal jam tins with a, with a fuse and scraps of stones and shards of metal and this kind of thing. That evolves very quickly. We start launching them out of uh, kind of old school catapults. Yeah. Uh, and then you get things like uh, toffee apples developed. You get the Mills bomb developed. We start firing toffee apples in banks instead of firing one because they're so slow and can be seen by the enemy in an opposite trench. We'll get 20. Just we'll fire them over half a mile front. What a toffee apple is. <laughs> Good point. So we're talking a big heavy mortar that looks literally like a, like a toffee apple. So it's a, it's a big ball with a, with a stick on it and it's fired by a charge and it's, it's a mortar bomb. It's a short range, high trajectory artillery piece, which is going to drop almost vertically down into enemy trenches. And we use these things in, in big numbers. So we'll, we'll literally bank them together, fire 20 simultaneously, and you'll fire them at different trajectories. So the guys in the trench on the other side can't escape them. They're incredibly devastating in terms of the power that they can, uh, the destructive power they offer. Uh, mortar men are not popular because they almost <laughs> always end up getting some pretty heavy reprisals on the, uh, on the guys in the trenches next to them. You know, they disappear quite quickly after firing their mortar barrage and the poor lads man in the line end up getting, uh, getting hammered by enemy artillery in retaliation. So they're not popular, but this is a, a new way of overcoming this, uh, the protective benefits of trench warfare. Hmm. Lovely. Thank you. To begin to oh, you can't use the word depends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I think I don't think you'll be able to not say depends on this one, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but we spent a lot of time talking about the Western Front, but this was a world war. Uh, there's people fighting in the Middle East, in the Balkans, in Africa. Um, how did the experience of the soldier on all sides uh, differ on these different fronts? Yeah, the answer, of course, is, yeah, is, is a, a huge amount. A huge, well, well, I didn't say it. A oh, huge yeah, amount is yeah, would be my answer on this one. So you know, it depends on where where in the world you are and the uh, the, the time that you're at. You know, things can be very very different. We we quite often look at the look at the Great War and we think, okay, there are two belligerent nations. It might be you know the, the Brits and the Germans. It might be the French and the Germans. It might be the Germans and the Russians. It might be the Australians and the Ottomans. You know, they all fight in different parts of the world at different times. Um, but there, there's also a third enemy that you can put in there, and, and and I think an important one as well. And that's the it's quite literally the weather. You know, the the weather can be pretty extreme and pretty harsh. 
You know, you might be you might be fighting in Ypres in 1917. Yeah, you're going to get wet and cold and, yeah. and mud, of course, has its has its own uh, issues. And, and in fact, can be a, a deadly foe in that sense. But if you're fighting in Asiago or Cortina, you know, the Italians against the Austrians, weather is the predominant yeah. enemy. There, there are points when there are one famous incident where you get a, a group of Italian soldiers and a group of uh, Austrian soldiers who pass, who spend the winter, stop fighting, spend the winter in the same hut, and then go back to fight each other in the spring. You've got this that goes back to the old Napoleonic campaigning season idea. Gallipoli is a, is a great example. You know, very, very hot in the summer, very, very cold in the winter. Quite often, these guys are not equipped for both of those in terms yes. of their, their kit and equipment. Um, you know, dysentery, a huge problem, flies, you know, very unsanitary conditions across really all fronts. So you've got these really, really tough environments. And, you know, you look at the, the southern part of the Western Front that we as Brits typically don't go and look at. You look at the, the Vosges Mountains. You, you've literally got trenches hacked out of the, the rock on tops of mountains and in stone. Yeah. You know, that multiplies the effect of artillery in, in an incredible way. You know, you, you explode a high explosive shell in a trench that's got flint sides. You're going yeah. uh, to be in big, yeah. big trouble. So all of these kind of things, yeah, they, they, you know, they, they really, uh, you know, they play into it in a big way. And, and, you know, it's, it's maybe, you know, we're talking, of course, things that annoy people about the great war. One of the things for me is everybody thinks it's always bloody raining. I don't know why (laughs) it's not always raining, you know, go to France, wake up any day of the year, look out your window. And if it's sunny now, reasonable chance it was sunny a hundred years before, you know, sometimes it's the first July, 1916 is 29 degrees. You know, it's, it's a nice, it's a very nice summer day. You know, all of these things play into it. And in fact, dehydration is even a problem on the Somme. You know, lads getting wounded early in the morning, get stuck out in no man's land all day. You know, it's, you're not worrying about freezing to death. You're worrying about dehydrating to death. So, you know, we sometimes, I don't know why, we seem to think that this there's a separation between the last hundred years in terms of climatic conditions. You know, it, it's not the case. It, it was a big deal then. It's a big deal now. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dan, because that's that's just given me so many dimensions to go looking at of uh, of the Great War, uh, and and with each World War One episode that we do, I think we just uncover yet another yeah. dimension of the Great War. Yeah, as another well. another layer gets unpeeled. Um, yeah, and I think we can safely come to the conclusion that pretty much everything that is normally said about the Great War is bollocks, <laughs> and, uh, and as such, but. Thank you very much. Do you feel better for getting that off your chest? Yeah, it's been, it's, it, you know, it's really enjoyable, actually. I think what you guys do is a great format to allow people to kind of uh, talk about this kind of stuff. Because, you know, it's important as well. You know, it, it's an important conversation to have and, and great to have it on a, you know, on a platform such as yourselves and uh, keep up the good work. Thank, well, thank you, you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode. If you'd like to know more, then you can and should get on board with any and all of Dan's tours of the battlefields of Europe. And you can find their details at www.danhillmilitaryhistorian.com and www.battleguide.co.uk. And we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dan Hill History. And Dan, thank you very much for for joining and undermining the trenches. Thank you, gents. Much appreciated and good fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I'm at Kyle G History. 
And we would love you to join the Angry Mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Just £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our regular prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Now, we're going to take a break now for a fortnight because we are at the end of a season. So we will see you again in two weeks' time for start of Series 8. Thanks a lot. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.